0: The addiction problem has been with us for some time now, and it appears it's going to be here for a while. There are many approaches from different organizations attempting to figure out what works in combatant addiction. This is no easy question, and there are no simple answers. Most forms of addiction treatment historically have low success rates. Some forms of treatment may work better than others. And there are various markers identified that are proven to be best practice. Even with all the best practices employed, success rates still remain low nationwide. Today, I want to look at the intersection of cultural healing and best practices. How does Native, a natural worldview of healing, seamlessly come together with evidence-based practice to get results in addiction treatment? My name is Roland Martin. I am a drug and alcohol counselor with Epithet Lutotipi. Before I talk about solutions to combat addiction, I think I should first talk about the problem of addiction. I think it's important for us to understand the nature of addiction before we begin to approach it. When I talk about the nature of addiction, this is how I come to understand it. Other counselors and professionals may agree, and many may not agree. Many don't explore the nature of addiction. They just go along with what they are given in their education. And that's okay. As every therapist, counselor, doctor, or any other professional will have an approach to their practice that's different from others. Just as clients or patients will have their personal preference to what type of therapy or treatment they best respond to. The formal definition of addiction as provided by the National Institute on Drug Addiction and SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Medical Health Administration. Their definition of addiction is, open quote, Addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking, continued use despite harmful consequences, and long-lasting changes in the brain. It is considered both a complex brain disorder and a mental illness. Addiction is the most severe form of a full spectrum of substance use disorders, and is a medical illness caused by repeated misuse of a substance or substances, end quote. So this definition describes the characteristics of addiction, but basically it's saying that addiction is a brain disorder and a mental illness. I would also like to read something here on DNA and epigenetics. Addiction is influenced by a blend of genetic and environmental factors, Certain genes can increase an individual's susceptibility to addiction by affecting processes such as neurotransmitter activity and drug metabolism. However, environmental factors, including early life experiences, peer influence, drug availability, and mental health play a significant role in determining whether someone with a genetic predisposition will develop an addiction. Epigenetic changes, which are modifications in gene function without alterations to the DNA sequence, can also be triggered by drug use and might influence an individual's long-term vulnerability to substance dependence. Despite genetic accessibility, various protective factors, both genetic and environmental, can mitigate the risk of addiction. For instance, a supportive family environment, involvement in social or religious communities, and possessing coping skills can offer resilience against the development of addiction. Conversely, factors like trauma or easy access to drugs, can amplify the risk. Ultimately, the expression of addiction results from the complex interplay between an individual's genetic makeup and their environment. End quote. I prefer the approach that doctor Gabar Mate provides when he explains that just about all brain development is a result of the environment. Scientific research of the brain provides for this conclusion. In consideration of what doctor Gobar Maté explains, it's difficult to follow the formal definition of addiction provided by National Institute on Drug Abuse and SAMHSA when we consider that just about all brain development is a result of the environment. We're basically talking about a traumatic environment leading to unhealthy brain development. We should also remember, science is showing now that the brain has plasticity. In other words, unhealthy brain development can be reversed, leading to healthy brain changes. Nor am I comfortable with seeing addiction as a mental illness, as Dr. Gheba Matei sees what is considered a disorder as really just a natural response to a traumatic event or a natural response to difficult life situations. Basically, it's saying that the natural desire to drink away the pain isn't really a disorder, it's an attempt to make things better. It will have temporary relief, but it will have long-term bad consequences. He goes on to say that the most powerful influence in the environment is the relationship between the parents and the child. This relationship, or basically a attachment, begins in a Before the child is born, the attachment to the mother begins. Within our culture, we understood that the stressors, or, difficulties that the mother may experience are going to be imprinted upon the child within her womb. There is a wide range of possible emotional states that the mother can experience that can imprint upon a fetus. You can use your imagination to imagine all of the difficult emotional states a young mother can experience. That sort of becomes an imprinted memory upon the psyche of this fetus, which will be carried with them into the world. The common theme here that contributes to addiction behaviors is trauma. Whether the trauma is viewed from the epigenetic standpoint, and we should remember, as stated earlier, any kind of epigenetics predisposition or expression is pretty much dependent upon the environment. Next, we can see trauma being imprinted upon a fetus from the mother's life experiences and carried into the world by the infant. Once the infant is born, there are other various traumas possible or really likely to happen. Adverse childhood experiences are very high on a reservation. So when I look at addiction, I'm really looking at trauma. The World Health Organization defines the meth problem as a trauma problem. We don't have a opioid, meth, or alcohol problem. We have a trauma problem resulting in an opioid, meth problem an alcohol problem. So I spent some time defining the problem of addiction. And believe me, I just barely scratched the surface when it comes to trauma and how it results in an addiction problem. So how does cultural forms of healing and evidence-based practice come together to address the problem of trauma? To better answer this question, we should have some understanding of what is trauma to begin with. A definition of trauma provided by Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is a government organization, defines trauma as trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being, end quote. Now that's a pretty basic description of trauma that most people can agree with. But as a Native American <clears throat> and as an employee of Empeteluto-Tipi, I see things a little different. I'm going to read the opening part of Empeteluto-Tipi's philosophy. Empeteluto-Tipi's mission is to deliver the highest quality behavioral health services that are guided by science and anchored in traditional culture, philosophy, and worldview in order to eliminate alcohol and other drug abuse on the Pine Ridge Reservation. End quote. Okay, that's just the beginning of the mission statement. But the, the key element here is where I'm looking at addiction through the lens of traditional culture, philosophy, and worldview. With that, I'm going to see trauma in a different way. And that's fine because it is best practice to incorporate culture into a Native American substance abuse program. SAMHSA, which is the federal government's leading administration on substance abuse and behavioral health services, sees trauma as a result of an event, series of events, or a set of circumstances that is experienced by the individual. The key part that I'm looking at here is the experience by and individual. The experience is an inward condition. The experience occurs within the mind, which then typically has an effect on the body, which may or may not include brain changes. For example, enlargement of the amygdala and the hippocampus. The experience results from an interpretation of what is on the outside of the mind. What's outside of the mind is the body and the environment. All too often, people. Attribute a traumatic event to something external, like a, a ferocious barking dog, a car accident or tornado, various forms of assault, a life-threatening situation, a near-death experience, or whatever have you. When we start to understand that the trauma is an in a, a internal experience within the mind, we can begin to see trauma in a new light. Trauma can be something that happens to somebody before they even learn how to speak it's pre-verbal. There are no words that can be put to it, but it's felt within. Trauma can be experienced before the birthing process. And then, of course, we have epigenetics. What I have learned at the base of trauma is some form of, I don't count, I'm not enough, I'm unloved, it's an unsafe world, I'm alone, abandoned, rejected, and attached to this is typically a sense of guilt, shame, and a sense of doom or punishment that's on the way. This is basically a state of subconscious mind that may or may not be conscious of it. Within the subconscious mind, we have the core belief system. This is the subconscious I am belief system. That is, continuously, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, just waiting for something to come across their eyes to project onto this unconscious core belief system. For example, if a child is abandoned by its mother, A child or infant will project onto the situation, I don't count, I'm not love, I'm not important, and I am unsafe. This is a felt sense, whether there is or is not, words available for a young child to express himself. This same experience repeats itself over and over again throughout life, whether the perceived experience is abandonment, rejection, some sort of physical assault, some sort of attack. A big one is drama within the family because from family we can feel rejected, abandoned, neglected, unwanted, unloved. This cannot be experienced by family around us if it was not first within and projected onto the family through some event, series of events, or set of circumstances as described in a definition of trauma by SAMHSA. The point is the trauma lives within the mind only. There may be outside triggering, triggering events around us in our environment, family, at work, or wherever. The traumatic event is based in interpretation. It's based in how we perceive what we see in front of our eyes. And how we interpret or perceive what we see in front of us is completely based upon what's in our belief system. And this is a unconscious belief system. We can look at it as a conditioning of the mind of early life experiences beginning within the uterus and continuing in a pre-verbal state and then from there on throughout life. We do have psychological theories that explain what I just said. For example, Sigmund Freud's Return of the Repressed. And then there is Carl Jung's version. Uh, Google has it, it reads, what is Jungian concept of projection? The answer. Described as the process by which one unwittingly ascribes one's own traits, emotions, and dispositions to another. Projection, according to Jungian, psychoanalysts, is one of the most common psychiatric phenomena. End quote. So basically, we are not abandoned until we believe we are abandoned. We are not attacked until we believe we are attacked. We are not rejected until we believe we are Rejected. And this goes for every difficult emotion and every sense of traumatization. It is first within the mind, projected onto specific events that occur to us or around us. Now, even the language I am using really isn't appropriate because, again, nothing happens to us until we believe it happened to us. Whatever the situation, circumstance, or event, yes, uh, factually, it did happen to a body. And even then, It's neutral until we give it meaning based upon what we carry within the mind. It is a rule of the mind. Whatever is in the mind will be projected out, good or bad. Whatever happens to a body, we believe happens to us as we believe we are bodies. At one time, before the cultural genocide, we had a much greater understanding of spirit. We were very much aware our nature is and that the nature of everything is spirit, and as spirit, everything is interconnected. Today we say things like interconnected. At one time it was a more felt sense. We understood the oneness of everything, which provided for us to have a much greater understanding of the nature of everything. We understood more of ourselves, the physical world, the spiritual world, and our place in it. This is by no way an educational understanding. It's not knowledge they were given. It was the experience that provided the understanding. The experience itself is beyond words. So I think we get the understanding how trauma exists within the mind, based in a belief system of separation, fear, guilt, being unloved, unimportant, not enough, vulnerable, and whatever else that is experienced on the outside of peace. Peace is the natural state of being. It's a natural state of spirit. But how can we look upon peace when we're busy looking upon separation, guilt, fear, shame, etc.? This belief system is painful. It's a wound and it hurts. And we understand hurt people seek to hurt other people. Wounding seeks wounding. And as long as we continue to support this belief system, attack will always be the result within our own mind, family, society, and amongst groups and nations. This painful mindset belief system is what we have. And for various reasons, of which I'm not going to talk about here today, is too short of time, it's difficult to let go. We actually cling to it and protect it and hold on to this painful belief system. We actually defend it, even though it brings great pain to us. Through the journey within ourselves, within the stillness of the mind, do we access what is true? This typically does not happen in one day. It typically does not happen overnight. It takes time to develop this process. It's difficult to still the mind because that voice in our head never shuts up. It just keeps talking. Try holding stillness. Try holding silence once. See how long it takes before you hear that voice talking. Probably about two or three seconds. And then you hear the self-talk in your mind again. We're so conditioned to mind wandering. We have no discipline of our mind. Because of this, it often takes effort to be alone in nature before your mind starts to calm still. There are many, many ways to do this. It often takes various attempts through different sources before someone finds what works for them. And when it works and they start getting results, they start to experience that stillness. It's very powerful and very validating. They know they're on the right path because that sense of peace comes from what is true. In the book, Black Elk Speaks, here's a quote, open quote. The first peace, which is the most important, is that which comes within the souls of people, when they realize their relationship, their oneness with the universe and all its powers, and when they realize at the center of the universe dwells the great spirit, and that its center is really everywhere. It is within each of us, end quote. Black Elk's not talking about achieving or acquiring or gaining. He's talking about realizing. In other words, we awaken to what is already within us what always has been. What Black Elk uh, is expressing here is the same message expressed by Native people around the world throughout time. Native tribes all across Turtle Island have their holy men who say the same thing at some point in time. Black Elk also refer to the great spirit that is is everywhere and it is within each of us. What is true has never changed. The essence of spirit of our being never changed how can we possibly change what the creator created do we have that power no do we get the power to remove ourselves from oneness and be on our own no we never left the mind the heart of the creator how is it possible to separate from the source you cannot what we can't have is a perceived reality a misperception of what is real what is true we can believe ourselves to be bodies to be individuals, to be separate. The belief itself provides the experience. Imagine that. One mind believing its many. I say one mind as Black Elk speaks of the oneness that we are. With this brief talk on oneness and the illusion of separation, we can begin to understand where the healing process takes place. The healing process occurs within the mind from the belief of separation, hurt, pain, guilt, shame, attack, to a slow, gradual realization that we're not guilty, we're not alone, we're not devalued, we're not the wounded, abused, neglected, abandoned, rejected body. These are the very painful emotions felt sense within that leads to the attempts to make things better through the use of alcohol and drugs. There is plenty of scientific research showing that the use of alcohol and drugs is an attempt to make things better, to escape what's felt within, to hurt the pain, of feeling unimportant, unloved, attacked, rejected, abandoned, etc. Now, this is the power of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a term, a therapeutic term used today. But the actual practice of mindfulness, or actually the practice of being still, going within has always been here in our culture. It is the pathway into awakening, to realization of oneness. It's the source of our wisdom keepers of the past. In the past, our norms and practices was more conducive to being alone in nature. Today, we don't have those norms and practices that supports that awakening from within. Today, we're all plugged into electronic devices, media, smartphones, etc., We are more disconnected to selves and to our inner awareness. So this is the intersection between the modern practice of mindfulness, which is an evidence-based practice in therapy, and our culture that used to support being alone in nature, being alone in a meditative state of prayer or whatever it is. When you read about Crazy Horse in the books, it often refers to him spending a lot of time alone in nature. That is a mindfulness way of being. You're not hearing the latest news from friends and family. You're not visiting, discussing stuff. You're not so much thinking about the future or the past. You're in a present moment in nature. The mind slows down and you begin to get in context with the present moment of what's going on around you. The, the grass, the wind, the birds, the heat of the sun, the feel of the air on your arms, the sounds you hear. When you're in the present moment of what's happening, you're more in touch with that inner direction. Because if we spend our time ruminating on the past, it's typically about something not good. And we have an endless cycle in our mind of what should we should have done, what we should have said, what could have been done different, if I only this, if I only that, or replaying a traumatic event over and over, what could have been done different. It'll keep you in a loop of pain, misery. Or if we're spending a lot of our time worried about the future, But this, that, things to come, we're self-generating a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry over nothing. The truth is, there is no past, there is no future. Both are man-made. What we have is right now. And if we can learn to be in a moment of now, we'll be doing much better. We would actually be moving in towards a healing direction. What I'm talking about here goes far beyond just addiction recovery work. You don't have to have the problem of addiction to start a mindfulness journey inward. You just have to have a desire for awakening, to change, to grow spiritually, to become aware of what is the truth about our nature and the world we're in. Think of anything that bothers you currently, today, or recently. When we bring this issue to the stillness of the mind, a correction occurs, a correct a correct perception, an interpretation is shifted. How we see the problem shifts. And what was once a problem becomes smaller and smaller until it virtually does not exist anymore because the nature of it only existed in the mind in the first place. There is nothing outside of the mind that holds the problem. There can only be a triggering event on the outside in the physical world that triggers where the hurt, where the belief system that is painful within the mind to be activated. The entire world itself is neutral, waiting for us to look upon it and give it meaning give it purpose, whether it be pleasant and nice, or painful, scary and traumatic. If we continue to believe that the problems are out in the world around us, friends, family, places, things, groups, whatever, then we will think the solution is also out in the world. Next, we spend our time trying to change the world, people, places, things. It doesn't work. In a healing process, we're not trying to change the world, we're trying to change how we see the world. How we interpret and see the world will determine how we feel and how we experience the world. With respect to addiction treatment, this is the intersection between evidence-based practice of mindfulness and the spiritual awakening through the stillness of the mind, most often found being alone in nature. Because we don't have our old customs and norms of the past, that naturally supported stillness of the mind, it's uh, required for us nowadays to basically research what it means to be mindful what it means to have stillness of the mind. There are plenty of books on this and stuff on the internet and YouTube. In my previous broadcast, I speak a lot about stillness of the mind. I open it up quite a bit. To find my previous broadcast, you can go on to Spotify, look under Native Addiction Healing, and you'll see the previous episodes there. You can find this episode there also. The name of this episode is Intersection of Native Culture and Evidence-Based Practice. At the end of this broadcast, I'll see it again, where you can find this broadcast and hear it again, or even download it. My name is Roland Martin. I am a drug and alcohol counselor with Empetid Lutotipi. Lutotipi. provides services for alcohol and drug assessments, DUI, DWI education classes, outpatient groups, aftercare recovery support groups, Medication, assisted treatment, and parenting classes. To find out more information on your services, contact an office closest to you. We have offices in Martin. The phone number is 605-685-6400. Pine Ridge, 605-867-5595. Kyle, 605-455-2331. Wombley, 605-462-6480. And my location is Sweat, 605-685-1583. To hear this episode again, or even to download it, go to Spotify. Look under Native Addiction Healing, and the name of this episode will be Intersection of Native Culture and Evidence-Based Practice. Thank you for listening.